Welcome to the Age Group to Pro Triathlon Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm the Age Grouper. And I'm Kaylee, the Pro. Our mission is to help newer triathletes go from confused to confident in their first few triathlons. So let's dive into today's episode. First off, I really want to say thank you to everyone who reached out and said congrats on your first and just even watched our first podcast or listened in. Um, The encouragements were overwhelming and I mean, it just made us feel really good and that inspired us to keep going. So here we are with our second episode and we're excited to share even more things. Yeah, it was it was so cool to see any outreach at all and to see people download it from Spotify and and listen and ask a lot of really good questions for future episodes. We thought it was going to get like three views. We didn't even want to listen to it ourselves, right? (laughs) Maybe even just our family just doing it to support us. So yeah, but we had over, we collectively had over 150 listens on our very first podcast, which is crazy to think that 150 people out there listen to some of of what we had to talk about. So just like Kaylee said, thank you so much for checking it out and helping us make it better. The feedback was overwhelmingly positive and we hope to implement a lot of those suggestions as we grow and develop here on the podcast. Let's dive in. What's going on in our world this week? I'm still catching up on a little sleep from the podcast launch. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I I mean... It's crazy to think we actually both just had our um, FTP test today, which seems like so long ago, but it was just this morning. So it's testing week for you. It's a little bit of a a lighter week, but not without some intensity to really test your body on the progress that you've made in your swim, in your bike, and in your run. Overall, do you feel like testing week's are easy? Do you think they're necessary for everybody to complete? Or do you think that's more of something that only pros should focus on? I think testing is actually a great way to learn where you are and kind of just get progress points as you progress through your training. Um, It's also fun to kind of get the legs burning, the the mindset pushing yourself through um, if you don't have a race coming up. So it's a good way to kind of spice things up in training. yeah. Are you doing some testing as well? Yeah. Well, not, not the veterinary vet school testing. Which, which one do you like less vet school tests or FTP tests? <laughs> They're very different. I think some of my vet school tests are terrible. So if you ask me on some days, my answer may change right now. FTP test is worse. <laughs> it definitely hurts more. So tests like Kaylee said, are a great way to measure your progress in the swim, in the bike, in the run. And some of the most important things to remember when executing these tests properly is, first of all, do the same test every time, especially when you're just starting out, because you have to learn how to push your body to its limits to find things like threshold and functional power in those numbers. And if you change up the the type of test, then you can't compare every three months, every six months to see your progress, right? Yeah, no, it's definitely something you have to kind of consistently pick one and and stick with it. I would say when we were first getting started, what, what was one of the first uh, tests that you came across that I feel like we both ended up sticking with? Yeah, there's a lot of different types of tests. So if you work with a coach, they tend to have ones they like most. And if you don't, the internet has the same types of variations that you can pick. So for the swim test, we do 100 meters or 100 yards all out. We do a minute rest and then we do a 500 all out. And that's really helping us to burn those anaerobic muscles and then test our threshold pace on the swim to see what we can really hold for that 500. We do something similar on the bike, right? Yeah, so... We kind of take the same concept of an all out and then to a somewhat of a threshold. Uh, On the bike, we do five minutes as hard as you can get those legs burning. Then you take a five minute interval, just pretty much air spinning. And then you go straight into 20 minutes as again, as hard as you can for 20 minutes. So it's it's a similar concept, um, but 
And, and I think there's easier tests than that. I think this one took a while for us to be able to even survive the test because it's a pretty short rest period. It's, it's testing for FTP functional threshold power is usually the number that people think you can hold for an hour straight. So whatever that 20 minute watt number is that comes up on your power meter, you would take 95% of that and then apply it and hopefully be able to hold that for a full hour. So there's some easier tests that you can find on Zwift, like the ramp test where it continues to ramp up over time. And this is just the consistent test we've done on, on the bike. Yeah. And it's, it's been a really good one to kind of, to stick with, but I think it's also worth noting that we've also failed this test before that it's not easy. And when you complete it and do it right, then it should hurt. It should burn. It shouldn't feel good. It shouldn't feel comfortable. Um, but I think that if you look at it and kind of, it, it could assess where you are, even if you, if you do fail it, it might be worth sticking with those numbers for a while on your um, workouts moving forward and then retest sooner um, to get an updated one, which is actually what I did. Um, yeah. Stick with it. Don't, don't pull the plug on the test. Just even if you go out too hard, finish it and learn from that experience because learning how to pace yourself is important, not only in training, not only in testing, but you'll mess it up in races too. Sometimes where you just go out too fast and you have to learn how to recover and still execute the race. Yeah. I think, um, even today I would say my first five minutes, I kind of felt great. Then I felt really bad, almost considered giving up. And then I probably about seven minutes left. I kind of regrouped my mind and just picked my legs back up and got my power back uh, to where it needed to be. So, yeah, I think, like you said, it's just important to to get your numbers and kind of get a little burn, but also learning what your mind can do and what it can push through. So, yeah, everybody has their good and bad days in a year and a half. I think we've each seen maybe about 60 to 80 watts of an increase on our FTP since we started yeah. Training and Do testing. you even remember what your first FTP was? <laughs> I remember what yours was. I think yeah. you started in the 130s, right? I think I was 139 and I did it on Zwift. It was, I think they have the same test um, built in. Vulnerably. we Yes, that's, that's very beginner, <laughs> especially mean, coming from a pro racing. You start year. somewhere. You start yeah. somewhere. So that's that why was, we're sharing it. Yeah. That was the number I started with. And we had runner legs. We were, we were behind on the bike big time. I think I was below 200. So Watts per kilogram does matter. So it's not just pure Watts. It's understanding what your weight's at and then taking your FTP Watts and then dividing it by your kilograms to find how effective you are for your weight, which is an important factor to consider. And then from there, the reason people like those numbers is because one, you can build out zones. And then two, you can also multiply your FTP by certain percentages. Like some people race their 70.3s at 85% of FTP. A lot of times I'll hear race an Ironman at 73% of your FTP. So it really gives you guidance of a range of not to blow up. So yeah, I think that that's actually something that people have asked me about biking and how do you even learn to do a biking workout? Because I mean, if you don't do anything like triathlon or cycling competitively, I think most of the time your experience on a bike is just getting on pedaling around and just kind of having fun with it. So learning to apply intensity structured workouts, it's actually pretty hard. And so I often will recommend to them that investing in a power meter is actually something very much worth doing somewhat early on because I think it can really help give your structure to biking, um, learn how to, to work your, your power zones that you can get from this FTP, um, build out some workouts. And then like Brian said, super important, being able to learn what you can hold and sustain for long distance triathlons. Because or short distance travel. Yeah, I guess short as well, but <laughs> yeah, not, not. <laughs> you're the expert on those. <laughs> yeah, so the power meters we have, it's built into our, our pedals of our bicycle. They're just 
Garmin power pedals, and then we have Garmin devices that link up to our power. There's a thousand different options. We're totally happy with ours. And um, again, consistency, just like with testing, make sure your power meter is consistent and you calibrate it. You will see different results indoors versus outdoors. So test consistently. Yeah, I guess making sure it's the same um, setup because we have found our Zwift numbers are usually not as good as our outdoor numbers, whether that's because indoor stationary trainer versus like even the momentum you can get from moving side to side. Um, but yeah, that is something we have found through, through testing. Especially early on. And then same for running. Do your best to test your runs on a similar loop. If you don't have a local track, we always do our testing track-based. That way it's consistent lap to lap. And the only factor we really can't control is it gets really hot down here in Georgia. So sometimes testing gets a little more challenging as it does get hotter because your heart rate will be higher. It's just, it's more taxing on the body. Yeah, there definitely comes a point in Georgia where no matter what time you're getting out there, it's just going to be really hot and humid. So yeah, there's a lot of factors that can come into play for, for how those tests go. But um, I think one other important thing is to treat it like a test. So try your best to to make sure you're fueling properly, um, getting enough sleep going into it and kind of taking it seriously beforehand, too. Yeah, I think everybody approaches it a little differently. I used to take it so seriously that I'd psych myself out. And I think after a year of really pushing it in training, to me, it's just like an easier version of a workout which yeah. is the nice thing about testing week where you went from 23 hours last week. Yeah. And then this week, how many hours do you have mapped out? I think it's only 12, 13, somewhere around there. So. Right. So the testing and the taper, it, it keeps some intensity on the body and it allows you to somehow recover at the same time when you pull back. So that's, that's our testing week going on so far. We had, a crazy experience on the way to our <laughs> FTP test this morning. We'll tell the story just in case the B-roll footage doesn't sound good, but essentially, do you want to tell the story? I mean, <laughs> this has never happened to me before, nor have I ever heard it happening to someone, but we got in the car today and opened the glove compartment and there was... This is where I keep all of my nutrition. That's, I mean, I feel like a normal place to store extra bars, some crackers, different things. And one of the lar bars was just halfway, like the, the, the wrapper was eaten through and half of the bar was ate. And we kind of just sat there and looked at it and looked at each other. And I was just, like, I didn't do that. <laughs> Did you eat that like an animal? I mean, yeah, he, he literally thought I had just nibbled on it until it kind of eventually dawned on us that this probably actually was an animal in the glove compartment and there were four peanut butter crackers missing too which four. i did not eat those four i, I mean, mean it has to be a family of mice in my car that i I have always said that peanut butter attracts all the things that you don't want to attract and never leave it exposed or unwrapped. So hopefully this is a lesson to other listeners who might be in areas with field mice or, or potentially worse that can crawl up from the hood into your glove compartment of the car and get to some of your, your peanut butter stored snacks. So Quick moral of the day, lesson of the day, do not keep your snacks unwrapped in the glove compartment or you might attract unwanted Even visitors. Even wrapped, though. These they might have been wrapped. wrapped. They might have been wrapped. These were wrapped. I know they were, so. Yeah, so that was absolutely. And I've always called Kaylee's car a dump. If there was one red, there was only one red flag when I first met her, and that was she... It looked like she was living out of her Toyota Prius at the time in college. And I, I think mean, they're... to my defense, I, I was a college runner 
And anyone who has ever experienced a Georgia summer and running in it knows the first thing you want to do when you get to your car is take your socks off, like, and get your feet cooled off because it gets so hot here. It's the less glorious side of that triathlon life, for sure. But I didn't get it as a non-college runner. I had to move your car at like 4 a.m. for a parking ticket one time. It was like the first week I met you. Yeah. And I I saw three dirty socks laying around and I was like, wow, this is the, the dirtiest car. And now we can literally call Kaylee's car a literal, a literal dumpster. So until we get rid of the mice. Yes. So that was crazy. Let us know if you've ever had uh, animals living in your car. <laughs> if, if you're brave enough to share that, that piece of info. So that's a perfect segue into our nutrition segment. We received some really great questions that we'll go through now on the podcast of different listeners. And as somebody in undergraduate, she asked you, how do you maintain nutrition and keep up with so many calories on the go? Like I know for a fact that your day is over 12 hours tomorrow out of, out of the house how do you keep up with the the caloric needs while also managing a busy school and training schedule out and about? Yeah, I think this was actually such a really good question because as a lot of people who are doing this as kind of a fun part-time gig and has other things going on in life, it can be hard to maintain 20 plus hour weeks and consume enough nutrition I don't think anyone doing it fun and part-time also does 20-hour weeks. There's, I mean, there's me. They're very, you're very serious. There's, you're not doing it fun and part-time. But it's still a good thing. I mean, even if you're not going for 20 hours, I think you can still need nutrition um, to even hit back-to-back workouts. So. Well, to contrast that, pro runners might train 11 to 13 hours at the most, and they're still ravenously hungry. So That's true. It's, it, it's not about the hours that you're training. It's about... Yeah. How, how do you maintain your nutrition when you're on the go? Yeah. So my biggest trick is just trying to get in the calories, just the, the raw numbers that I need to hit each day. And to do that, I make sure that I have some sort of snack in almost every single bag, which is my backpack, my swim bag, and at the time, my car. So that pretty much wherever I was, I always had access to something I know this can get kind of boring to do because it's eating the same things over and over again. So I kind of have picked out three snacks. For me, it's Larvars and peanut butter crackers um, and goldfish. So I have that stashed away in all different corners and pull them out and eat in between classes, in between workouts. Um, so, yeah, I think that has been a really big thing to add into my life, my life. And this is the non-sexy side of triathlon, of getting enough fuel, because Kaylee's actually a really good cook. She's actually a clean eater. You have to color in the the gray space of calorie deficit. Otherwise, your body isn't going to perform and recover and actually grow and develop. It will go the opposite way. It will think it's dying because it's not getting enough fuel and not getting enough raw calories to actually restore glycogen storages and be able to hit that next workout so those sound like empty calories right like especially goldfish yeah i guess i mean it's just a bunch of a bunch of carbs but at the same time you know if you look at the nutrition facts of goldfish there's a lot of things that i don't like in there and this isn't going to turn into a nutrition talk but one of the things i do like as a triathlete is the sodium content yeah. In addition to the carbs. So you're replenishing the basic electrolyte that you need, sodium, while getting the calories to get you to your next quality meal. Yeah. I think that's the big part is is filling the gaps, as you always say, to get to, to the meals, which I would say that's probably the hardest. The big wholesome meals are the hard things to get in while you're on the go all the time. So I think making sure quality dinner is super important, um, as well as breakfast if you can. But at the end of the day, I always make a really big dinner um, and make sure I'm hitting all of my macros there. Yeah. And dinner looks like 
two or three full servings of it. So we'll go back two or three times or until we run out of it, getting in enough calories, getting in the micronutrients, the carbs, the proteins that way, um, especially with busy lives and jobs and in school, it's having those core meals anchored and then using the snacks as a crayon to color in the, the nutrition gaps. And that's usually just a calorie gap in between meals. Yeah. And I think Brian and I actually have different uh, challenges when it comes to filling it in with, I can kind of eat through classes. So I do have the flexibility of kind of eating my snacks. I just don't have access to refrigerator, to uh, a kitchen, to where I can kind of prep meals. So I have to kind of plan it out ahead of time. But Brian um, mostly works where he can't eat while on meetings, but he does have the the small times in between to grab food. So what are some of the things you um, pick up while you're you're working? It's all the my advice on the nutrition side is get boring, figure out what your gut and your stomach can handle and then rinse and repeat it. So Kaylee is extremely lactose intolerant. I am the most tolerant lactose consumer ever. So whole milk is a great form of calorie. Fairlife is a great alternative for you. So getting boring and just locking in what works on your stomach and gut. So for me, it's three to six eggs in the morning, two to five pieces of toast. It's the Belvitas that we have. For lunch, you do a berry bowl smoothie mix, which has Greek yogurt and all of those healthy things. I love chicken salad sandwiches or peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And then for dinner, we rotate through all the various types of protein once a week where we'll get chicken, which has different types of branch chain amino acids than steak and steak has the iron content and then pork has different B vitamins and nutrients and fish has the omega threes and other things that are really optimal for human diet. And if you have dietary restrictions, learn where you can fill in some of those gaps, because I would say we're on the seafood diet. We see food and we eat it. Yeah. We eat anything (laughs) that's put in front of us. A lot of our friends like going to eat out to eat with us because we kind of just eat everything. So it's going to be a long meal and it's going to be a five course meal. Yeah. Yeah. So it's clean, but there's a lot of dirty coloring in between the lines. So we, we hope that helps a little. Just know that based on metabolism and body weight, your needs are going to be very, I mean, living together, we compare and contrast what we eat. And as a 150 pound man versus a hundred teen pound female, our caloric needs are very different. Yeah. So don't, don't compare your needs. Just find that sweet spot of, you know, where you're actually getting enough. And it's probably a little more than you think. Yeah. I think like I, like I always say, it's just making sure you hit that number. At the end of the day, you need to at least hit the amount of calories that you've burned that day and usually more to, to keep, to keep fueling for the next day. So yeah, the more you eat, the more you can train. And the final thing I'll say about it is there is an appetite lag. So a lot of times we'll have a big block of two or three hard days. The hungriest days sometimes come after those days. Yeah. Right now with the, my down week, I, I think I'm almost eating more, wanting to eat more and, I'm letting myself eat more. So yeah, something called ghrelin, which uh, initiates appetite in the stomach is suppressed the higher training volume that you have. So your appetite might actually come around in taper weeks in race weeks. And that's what's going to recover those glycogen storages to help you have that magical performance come race time. So let your body do it, let your body recover so you can really push yourself. Yeah. And I, I'm lucky to have Brian to always remind me and keep me on top of it. Cause I, I'm not even perfect at that yet. I think eating things within the 15 minutes after working out is really important and I'm really bad at that. And I think having Brian helps remind me to get it in, even if I'm not hungry or I don't feel like having it. So whether you have someone in your life to help you do that or not, just try to put that, that 
that same person in your head to to remind you, make sure you're eating, keeping in the fuel. So yeah. It all, yeah, it all evolves over time. I mean, Kaylee and I have both had days where we can't complete our workout because we're too hungry. So just like with training, you learn how to push yourself in the nutrition side of it and, and grow there as well. So yeah, I think that's a really good overview of the nutrition piece. Somebody asked, uh, one of our, our listeners said, love the concept age group two pro they recently completed their first 70.3 in texas and said this is all cool but how the heck do you even become a pro so you know i think a lot of people here professional athlete professional triathlete they're out there competing and what what does it first of all what does it mean to be an age grouper versus a pro triathlete? Yeah, I think that's such a good question because even at our first race, we saw a bunch of different categories on, like to, when we went to sign up, there's a ton of different categories and we had absolutely no idea which one to choose. Um, right, so there's Clydesdale. What's, Athena. What's Clydesdale? Uh, Clydesdale and Athena are, well, Clydesdale is going to be males. Athena is going to be women and they are over a certain weight. Right. Um, so you can have the heavy weights in triathlon and actually compete against people. There's a weigh in, which to me is so cool. Like it's like you're an endurance athlete over a certain weight class. It's like being the heavyweight boxer, right? Yeah. It's like a whole different um, class. So they, I mean, but those are two, two options. And then you have your, you have age group, your age group, which, which means what going to divide you up based on every five years. Uh, or so, yeah. So it's about, for me, I would be in the age group of, uh, 25 to 29. Um, Brian would also, that's his age group. So it kind of just yeah, works barely. up. He, it works up in increments like that yeah. though. Um, and so you then are competing against anybody that age of the same male or female. Um, and no, then, it's gender separated. Well, yeah. So male, yeah. male age group, female age group. Right. And then some places will have overall titles as well. Mm. Um, and then there's certain races, not all, but certain races have a pro category. So can anybody enter that? So the pro category is for only people that have what is called an elite license, um, at least for an American. Um, every nation has different requirements to get their elite or professional license. And then though they can show proof of that at any professional event. Um, so I think we would only t be able to really touch on the, the American qualifications, but yeah, so your country has to set give you permission. So for the United States, it's USAT, United States of America Triathlon. And they have to say, okay, you're allowed to race. So knowing that not anyone can sign up to be a pro, you have an elite license from the United States of America based on the, the criteria that you hit. Yeah, so they... Uh, USAT actually has a really great uh, document with lists of ways to apply for your elite membership. And it's actually really a great way to kind of read through and understand what you can do to or like what goals you have to achieve to be able to to make that jump. Yeah, there's there's several different ways that there might be eight ways in the United States. I'll put the document link below our YouTube for this episode. That way you can read into them more. One of the most common ways is when you're racing the same field distance as a pro, if you're within 8% of their time and one of the top finishers at three or more races in a calendar year, you're allowed to apply for your elite license. So I know that's a really common way when racing in Ironmans to compare yourself to see how you stack up against the pro field. And if you're if you're close enough to the to the winning pro, then you're allowed to apply that way. Yeah, the the different ways are very specific. 
And I know that when I was going through this process, the USAT members or people were super helpful with me and responsive to emails. So I know that if you ever have questions about it, you can always reach out to them. And I think they're super willing to answer. Um, for me, the way I got it was the race. I, I This was for Clash Daytona in December. It was a big enough event that had a certain prize purse with professional athletes there. And by winning the age group, it allowed me to have the opportunity to apply for it. Um, and there's also a point system, right? Throughout yeah, the year. Yeah. And on top of that, you have to have, you can have scored over, I think it's like 106 points, which is kind of just a scoring system that they give to each of your races. And if you have had three races over, it's like 106 points, something, then that's another way that you can qualify to apply for it. And we were doing races all year and didn't even know that this website existed, that you were being scored. Yeah, we, we got to the last race of the season and someone's like, oh, yeah, we've been following your scoring, Kaylee. It's so good. And then we checked mine and it was less good. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a, a system where they're not just ranking the pros on, on PTO, but it, there's another website. Again, we'll link it in the description in our YouTube where you can check how you're ranking based on the difficulty of the course, based on the strength of field, similar to the pros and, and things like that, see how you stack up. Yeah, it'll show your ranking against other people in the nation in your same age group. So it's a it's kind of fun. It's like if you're a competitive person, it's kind of a, a fun way to watch yourself move up in the rankings um, against other athletes that are similar to you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really cool. We'll, we'll have to put a, a link so other people can go check out where they're ranking. And it's, it's nice to know either way, because if you have ambitions of doing it more and more competitively over time, like us know from the very beginning, what it's going to take in order to step up to the, to the elite field. It was like the first thing I figured out when getting into triathlon. And if you have no ambitions to step up to the pro field, it's still interesting to see that path because you'll say, wow, this newer pro that I'm cheering for went through this process in order to earn their elite status. A cool story I heard on this is allegedly Lucy Charles Barkley was actually denied her elite card the first time she applied from Britain. Wow. They, they turned her away <laughs> before eventually becoming one of the best pros. So that was... Try again, right? Yeah. I guess keep going and keep working. So, yeah. So, very cool. It's there as of 2021, there were 471 American pros, men and women, registered with an elite license. So, there's around 470 professional triathletes in, in our nation, at least. And that will cover both short and long course, right? Short and long course, male and female. So that's a big spread. At, at Oceanside this past weekend, we saw 72 male pros alone registered internationally. But yeah, it was it was a huge field. Yeah. So if you have any follow up questions on that, feel free to ask on Kaylee's link tree. We put up a questionnaire there. But that is the general, that's the high level journey uh, way that Kaylee became a pro in, in long course triathlon and then registered with Ironman from there. So um, let's talk about our fun little section. We, we actually got some compliments that people were like, wow, I never knew that try hard hair product existed. My hair has been a mess. I'm really glad you told me about it. So, oh. Again, we're not sponsored by any of these products, but we want to talk about things that have helped us in triathlon, getting started throughout our our athletic careers to make a difference in our world. So today's topics are running shoes. We won't badmouth any shoes that haven't worked for us. If you want our opinions, ask us directly. But there have been shoes that have made a positive impact for us, whether it's getting more miles in without injury or going faster. So let's start with what's the fastest shoe that you've run in for 
either high-end speed work and racing? So I think the fastest shoe I have found so far that has worked for me has been the Nike Vaporfly. Uh, I think I've had the first and second. Is that now? So, or you just had the two of the second editions. Both, they're both second. Okay, yeah. so I've only ran in the Vaporfly 2s. Correct. Um, and, I mean, they truly make me me go faster. Or if nothing else, I, I can go faster with less effort is how it kind of feels. That's the best way to put, yeah, the Vaporfly 2s. And you've also ran in the Alphafly 1s. This isn't bad-mouthing them. You said they were even faster than the Vaporflies. Yeah, when I first tried them out, they, I, it was, I guess, different from, like, with the Vaporflies, making it feel easier to go faster. These actually made me feel like I was going faster in them. But, I mean, they have shredded my feet. So, so the fastest shoes that don't work for you. So they're off the table, but... They probably are slightly faster than the vapor flies when you're when you're running yeah, at speed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if they if if your feet can handle them, they are faster. And if you buy direct from Nike, they have a phenomenal return policy. So even if I, I, the same thing happened to me with Alpha Flies, the, the internal plate shredded the arches of both of our feet. I sent them back a bloody mess and they gave me vapor flies instead. So no questions asked. So I'd recommend testing those two if you're looking for fast shoes. We've used a lot of the other elite shoes. The What makes the vapor flies fast is a combination of, you always hear about the carbon plate, but it's also the foam, which yeah. is something that was, that was missing in the mid 2000, like 2010s. It was always minimalist as fast, light as fast. The compression and expansion of the foam material is actually really important too. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of their research has found is that almost the the foam itself is more of the critical component than the plate. But yeah, so we've tried Saucony Pro 2s. They treated us well. They just had less cushion. So I think they beat us up a little more, but we'll still do tempo days in them and things like that. Yeah, those are actually my choice shoe for um, my long, fast runs. Yeah, we like the Saucony Pro 2 and the Saucony Speed 2. Yeah, the Speeds are actually way more comfortable than the Pros. I think they just are a little bit less fast, um, but I really like those for track work. Yeah, so the Speeds have something called a nylon plate versus a carbon plate. And especially if you're doing tempo work on uneven surface, so we run on a mix of gravel and asphalt, the carbon plate, if you catch a rock, can really stretch out the arch of your foot. But the nylon plate has a little more give and it's a little more forgiving. So, And they're a little more comfortable. They, they kind of just wear a little bit better on your feet. Yeah. So that's really the main difference there. So those are two fast shoes that we really like. And then what about for some extra cushion? You'll see we have no brand bias whatsoever here. Yeah. <laughs> because... You know, when it comes to longer runs with some extra cushion, what do we decide to use there? Well, yeah, even our short runs. I mean, this is what we use as our everyday trainers or our um, or our Asics. The what are they called? The Nova Blast threes. Yeah. yeah. The Nova Blast. Um, we've gone through two Nova Blast twos. Yep. And now we've upgraded to Nova Blast threes. So so far, so good. We've liked both generations. Um, yeah, the, the heel to toe drop on the Nova Blast 1s, if you see them on sale, was a bit too steep for my liking. But they fixed that and the Nova Blast 2s really cushioned. The heel's a little bit clunkier than the, the yeah. Nova Blast 3s. But the, the cushioning in them for the price point, we find really keeps our, our, our legs fresh on sort of the recovery miles. So we're, we're fresher on the harder days. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I had to recommend just one shoe for anyone, I would, I would definitely go with the Nova Blast because even though they are a little clunky and are more for your kind of just everyday training runs, I've also ran tempos and have done long, hard runs in them as well. And 
have hit good numbers in them. So I think that they can be used as like an all-inclusive shoe that the next day your legs aren't going to feel terrible after wearing them. Yeah, and some of that's the runner, not the shoe. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the the carbon plate's only going to make a difference when you're at that point where I think the science found it to be under 730 per mile where, you know, that VO2 max 4% rule starts to apply. So... I would definitely opt in for protecting your body and your shins and, you know, all those little aches that you get from wearing bad shoes versus going for speed all the time. Yeah. And if you have a shoe that works for you, I always recommend just if you can buy two when you find them on sale, because the most important thing with shoes is making sure you're switching them out when they're done, because I have found such a difference of getting kind of that shin splint feeling. And it's almost always because my shoes are, they're old. The moment I put the other ones in and start running and transition back or to a new shoe, the shins start feeling much better. So yeah, the, one of the best habits you can get into is tracking miles on your shoes. Strava has a really great feature for it. You just plug it into the gear section and then set your new shoe as the default everybody has a different limit on their body. When my shoes hit 250 to 280 miles, if I keep pushing them past 300 miles, I start to get shin pain right away. So track your miles on your shoe. Find that point where your body can't really handle the cushion that's worn down and it will it will save you from injuries long term. Yeah, it's definitely important to do and... I think another important thing that we have found, um, this is a perk of not being sponsored at the moment, is that if you find a shoe you love and then they come out with a new one and all of a sudden you do not love that shoe anymore, (laughs) it is okay to go out and try different shoes because we have had that love-hate relationship with shoes before where we, I mean, what, what was it? The Triumphs, I think the Saucony Triumphs, we thought were the best shoe of all time, wore them for multiple um, generations, I guess, as they call them. And then and we're not going to badmouth them, but no. we found shoes we liked more. Yeah. And so we're still at this point, I mean, we're open-minded that as soon as the Nova Blast 4s come out, we're going to try them out. But, you know, I think just knowing that they do change shoes a lot every year. So don't be afraid to kind of try a different pair if, if the ones you're used to are not working anymore. Commit to your partner, but play the field in the shoe game. It's dating, not married when it comes to shoes. Yeah, <laughs> I guess, I guess for a lifetime. <laughs> yeah. So don't put a ring on the, on the shoes that you choose. When, when I first started running with Kay, Kaylee, when COVID hit, I had frozen vitamin water bottles taped to my shins because my shins hurt so bad and as soon as i switched to a more cushioned shoe that worked for me versus running in shoes with 400 500 miles i could walk again so those are some of our up-to-date current shoe recommendations if it wasn't on the list it doesn't mean it's bad shoe that's just what's working for us yeah so to to wrap up our our conversation i wanted to dive in a little bit on mindset because some days we're fired up some days it's hard to get out the door and we're actually very different when it comes to personal development and motivation and one of the thoughts i've been constantly having is I think motivation is overrated. I think I might get a a little bit of hate for that from the the personal development people. And I mean, you know me, I've read all the books, right? (laughs) Yeah, we have a lot of them downstairs in our, our little mini library. Right. So when, when it comes to mindset, are, do you feel constantly motivated a hundred percent of the time when when you have a 23 hour block of training? Yeah. I mean, I think the easiest answer to that is definitely not. I mean, 
I don't know if anybody can be motivated 100% of the time. So I guess like you're saying, motivation isn't the the key to what gets you out the door every day. Not necessarily. Right. And we talked about this a little bit. What When motivation isn't there, what helps you get to the workout? What helps you get to that, that moment in time for you personally? I think for me, it's almost knowing how hard I'm going to be on myself if I don't get out there and complete something that as well as I have really high goals. And I think that achieving those goals, I know require a lot of hard work. Um, So I know that I need to pretty much put in the work to, to achieve those goals. So I I guess, like you said, it's just those goals. Yeah. I think, the difference between choosing your goals and having someone choose them for you is key. No one signed up Kaylee and I for triathlon. We consciously chose the decision and the path to become an okay triathlete and a good triathlete respectively. So being emotionally attached to the goal and outcome helps you to understand and do what it takes day in and day out when the motivation isn't there to get out of bed and do it. Yeah. And I I think that having that goal kind of just, like I said, I I know I'll feel bad if I don't get out there and do a workout. Um, I think the thing that gives ultimately is going to be how much effort I give. And I've learned that if I'm not very motivated, that even a little bit of effort is going to be better than none at all. So I think What's your 30 minute rule? I love that one that your, your coach gave you in college. Yeah. I, I was at one that still sticks with me that whenever I didn't feel like going out for a run, like if you had an hour long run on your schedule, it was kind of, and you just really didn't want to the, the trick was just get out and do 30 minutes. You, you can, can find a way to convince yourself to do 30 minutes of anything. I mean, it's, doesn't take a lot of time out of your day and it's like an easy attainable goal. So it's like, get out, get on your bike for 30 minutes, go out for 30 minutes of running, swimming for 30 minutes is a long time. So maybe, maybe you can adjust the swim one. No, no, 30 minutes. <laughs> 30 What's minutes. What's the rule? You, you can do anything for 30 minutes. Um, and if you get out there and get started, usually you will get that workout in. And if you don't after 30 minutes? You call it a day. You can pull the plug. Yeah. You obviously there's something you you just don't need to do it for that day. Right. So the 30 minute rule boiled down is if you have something on your calendar and you want to give up on it, try it for 30 minutes. And if you can't get past that wall, pull the plug on it. Yeah. And how many times do you think you're not going to make it through a workout? Happens, would you say once a week? Yeah, I think Probably once a week for sure. Yeah. I mean, you have 15 to 18 workouts a week. Yeah. I haven't even really put a number on it, but I mean, more twice than, a day. More than 14. Yeah. It's it's, <laughs> it's more than twice at a least day. twice a day. And then I think I'm up to a, maybe three days, three workouts. So, so at least the point is at least yeah. one of those on a weekly basis, we might feel like we can't get through. So use the 30 minute rule instead of trying to find that motivation. Because what I found is there's a reverse effect when you see all of this Instagram content on motivation and it feels like everybody's so successful and they're waking up at 4, 10 a.m. and drinking mud water and, you know, they're winning Nobel prizes before 7 a.m. And you're like, oh, I can barely get out the door for this workout. So the the motivation is a double-edged sword where I think we end up attacking ourselves and feeling even more guilty when we aren't that CEO getting up at 4 a.m. And, and doing all those yeah, things. Yeah, I guess it's almost like questioning, why are you not motivated? Why are you and, not the Navy SEAL who, yeah. you know, takes a picture of his watch? Love you, Jocko. I mean, you're never going to hear this, but uh, that's not me. As soon as I stopped judging myself for all of the the things I didn't do, 
and started to give myself a little credit for the things that I was doing, my relationship with internal motivation flipped entirely. Yeah. No, I think it's a very, a very good point to bring up because as a triathlete, you were learning to become good at good, great, and expert at three events, which that's a lot. It's not going to go perfect. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a lot of things to take on and you're not going to always feel good doing all three of them at all times. No, so. you, you are an incredible person for working to tackle this. We, I remember finishing our first triathlon and I said that was harder than I ever could have imagined it being. So just just completing the event, you are incredible for doing so. So give yourself a little credit if the progress isn't happening as fast as you want it to. Give yourself a little break and find that internal motivation that comes from attaching yourself to the emotion of the goal. You know, I watch Kaylee and her news feeds are in motivational posts after motivational posts. So she doesn't digest it the same way I do, but she's the most motivational person I know. She never misses workouts or cuts swim shorts or anything like that. So I wanted to share that with people because I think we're in this era of, we have more information and knowledge than ever. And we live in a more anxious society than ever. Do you see that in the people that you're around? Yeah, I think it's super easy to get tied up in what everyone else is doing and what you're not doing. So so I think that's that's so important. And I wanted to get that message out there because it's <laughs> I mean, we started this conversation with mice and goldfish. Nobody's lives are going like they look on Instagram. <laughs> To say the least. Just taking it one workout at a time. One workout at a time. One podcast at a time. And it's it's not perfection. But yeah, I think that's a great place to end it. Thanks for joining us. On yeah, we're, we're happy to be here and excited for anything you guys may have to give us some feedback. We love to take any of your questions um, and like to cover topics you may have of interest. So feel free to reach out on my, what is it called? Link, LinkedIn tree, LinkedIn tree. <laughs> Don't reach out <laughs> to Kaylee's LinkedIn because she's not going to see it or answer you. There's something. Link tree Link on her tree. Instagram. There we go. You can ask any sort of triathlon related questions you have and we'll make sure to answer them on this podcast. Thanks for joining Age Group to Pro Triathlon Podcast. We'll catch you next time. See you then. So let's dive into today's episode. Okay. And don't my leg, don't do a leg slap. <laughs> Look at that.